Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast. A fish out of water podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 157, Films of Fairy 5, Fairy Tales in the Modern Day. More fairy tales, in fact, the conclusion of the fairy tale series. Yeah, we've uh, gone through a lot and uh, now the fairy tales are breaking in to the everyday, to our modern world, um, which is kind of a break in the rules. If you'll uh, remember some of the things we were talking about, again, this whole series is kind of um, being guided by Tolkien's On Fairy Stories essay, which will be linked uh, in the blog post. But he, he does kind of address this type of fantasy, this type of fantasy that is incorporated into the modern world. Uh, and it goes along with this idea of recovery. And so of the, of the four qualities of fantasy that we've already covered, there was um, escape, consolation, which was the catastrophe, the fantasy, the magic, um, imaginative element, and then recovery is the last one, or the last one that we're covering in the way that we have structured this. Uh, and the, the idea with recovery and fairy stories and these magical mythical stories is basically looking at the real world, but from a new angle. Um, and Tolkien talks about how every fairy tale does this. Like the most essential elements of fairy tales are still real life elements that don't actually have that much magic in them, but they just have to, like, we have to find ways to look at the world around us in, with fresh eyes. And so you can see this a lot in Tolkien's writing um, because Tolkien was so influenced by nature. And so sometimes it's, it's you know, people who, who don't prefer that style will use it as a criticism. But Tolkien spends a lot of time describing trees and, and hills and rocks and just the nature in his stories. And none of that is fantasy. That's all stuff pulled directly from the real world, but in a way that helps us look at it with fresh eyes and kind of. Uh, you know, even in certain personifications, like if you look at Treebeard, you know, it gives a voice to those elements of the real world and helps us imagine interacting with them in new ways. Uh, so that's and that's in Tolkien's pure fantasy. But there's also what he kind of describes as Chestertonian fantasy, which is a little bit of a misnomer. Um, but he he says Chest, Chest, uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was also a fantasy writer. Um, who influenced uh, a lot of the writers in Tolkien's era. I think they were contemporary. I'm not sure how far before Tolkien uh, Chesterton was. But Chesterton talks about the idea of Morifok, which is spelled uh, M-O-O-R-E-E-F-F-O-C. So it looks like a really alien word. It's like a, a foreign alien land. Um but Chesterton writes about this as a way of looking at the real world from a new lens because he pulls it from this is this is from a book that Chesterton wrote about Charles Dickens, where Dickens talks about the world of Morifock. But Morifock can be found all throughout London, uh, less so in America. But really what it is, is it's the word coffee room seen through a mirror. And so the word is reversed and it kind of turns into this whole new thing. And especially for Tolkien, who says that words evoke worlds, basically for him. So 
like the beginning of The Hobbit where he was grading papers one day. He flipped over a sheet of paper and wrote, in a hole in the ground there lives a hobbit. And as someone so involved in the world of words, just the word hobbit kind of evoked the entire um, Shire and then it invokes Middle Earth. Um, stuff that he had already been working on, but but certain words can give a new, fresh perspective on those kinds of things. Uh, and so the way Chesterton talks about Morifak is just looking at looking at the real world from a new lens and finding this kind of mythical, magical, uh, awe-inspiring, wonder-inspiring element in it. Um, and uh, Tolkien talks about this kind of fantasy that is in the real world, but, you know, where the fantasy and the real world intersect as kind of limited in terms of its fantasy application. But this idea of recovery is one of the best, is one of the things that it's best at doing because it directly encounters the real world with this uh, fantastical element. And so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about films that do that. And I think what we're going to find, at least what I've kind of been noticing, is that film in particular is really good at this type of fantasy. One thing that I, that I mentioned in the very first episode of the series is that Tolkien uh, was not a fan of dramatized fantasy. Once you see the fantasy in front of you, uh, again, I, even I, I mentioned that Tolkien has this kind of even aversion to seeing the witches from Macbeth. He feels like the witches are best played in uh, literature or even the oral tradition because there's more imagination involved in those mediums. But with film, which is a direct representation, I think it's really good at doing this type of fantasy where most of the story is set in the real world and then where the fantasy intersects becomes more poignant um, because of that direct representation of the real world through film. And I think that the, the films that I tried to choose are, they have varying degrees of subtlety in the way that they do this. Cause a lot of times, sometimes you have to be careful in the way that you do this, depending on what you want the effect to be. So we have films that are hyper fantasy and we have films that are very, uh, the, the fantasy is kind of underlaid. The, there's magic in the film, but it's almost implied. It's almost just in the background of the more or less unfantastical stories that are going on. Um, and they're also all based on uh, pretty traditional fairy tales. And there's uh, some crossover in the stories, as we will uh, talk about. But, Alex, will you set up what the stories that we are talking about today are? Certainly. Uh, we are going to be starting off with The Red Shoes from 1948, directed by The Archers, who we've done a podcast on before, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, written by Powell and Pressburger, inspired by The Red Shoes by Hans Christian Andersen, starring Moira Searer, Adton Walbrook, and Marius Goring. Cinematography by Jack Cardiff and music by Brian Easdale. I guess it's the, uh, the Hans Christian Andersen episode, isn't it? Uh, because next we'll be talking about Ponyo from 2008, directed by Heo Miyazaki, written also by Miyazaki, and inspired by The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen, starring Yuri Nara, Hiroki Doi, Tomoko Yamaguchi, and George Tokoro. 
it's also partially inspired by uh, Wagner's ring uh, ring cycle, specifically uh, Die Valkyrie. Ah, there you go, Die Valkyrie. Cinematography by Atsushi Okui and music by Joe Hisaishi. And then finally, we'll be talking about Undine from 2020, directed by Christian Petzold, written by Christian Petzold, and inspired by Undine by Friedrich de la Motte Folk, uh, starring Paula Beer and Franz Rogowski, and cinematography by Hans Fromm. And I think last time I said that uh, Undine was going <laughs> to, we're going to say, we're going to pronounce it every single way, but <laughs> in the film, they, they pronounce it Undine. Um, but I think I said it was French, and I apologize because it's a very, very German film, and it's from a very, very German story. Uh, so, with that apology made, Jason, set up The Red Shoes for us from 1948. The Red Shoes from 1948. When his lead dancer quits an active ballet production to get married, the company director, Boris Limontov, enlists an up-and-coming dancer and composer to create a new ballet based on Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, The Red Shoes, about a young girl who dances in her beautiful red shoes. But when she wants to stop, the shoes continue dancing. Both Victoria, the ballerina, and Julian, the composer, prove to be world-class talents and the show is a hit. During the run of the show, Vicky and Julian fall in love, which compels Lemontov to fire Julian and, in turn, prompts Vicky to quit. After Julian and Vicky get married, Vicky takes a break from high-profile dancing so that Julian can further his composing career. Meanwhile, Lemontov refuses to perform the red shoes with any other dancer, but when he catches up with Vicky and gives her the opportunity to perform as a world-class ballerina once more, she must finally decide where her allegiance truly lies, in her heart or in the red shoes. All right, Alex. So I think with each of these, I am interested in the kind of the reasons to incorporate the fantasy element because a lot of these stories could be just straight drama films or straight, uh, I guess, drama in the most broad sense of, you know, it's just a straight story. Not that it's, you know, Oscar bait or anything. Uh, but the, the element of magic usually is making a statement in these kinds of films. Uh, and in The Red Shoes, it's, I think there's this idea of the magic as a mirror. So the story is a very meta story coming from the archers who are hyper artistic, uh, hyper dramatic um, types of directors and uh, creators. And so in this story, which is about a really heightened form of art in ballet and a, a, a heightenedly uh, abstract to some degree, uh, because the, the actors in the film, uh, specifically Moira Shearer, was a professional ballerina and not an actress. And so they, they took a lot of time to get actors who, or at least train professional dancers to act and be in the film. Uh, but it's a film about art as this obsessive, uh, and consuming pursuit. And you can see that as a, you know, it's, it's a meta element for, again, these, these directors who are very consumed with their art, which you can see in the insane amounts of detail and quality and craft that goes into every one of their films because we've covered several of them on the on the show and each one of them is just so precisely crafted 
that it's crazy. And so I think the red shoes is probably one of the most uh, personal types of stories to make for them. It works well because the, um, the world of, uh, of performance and especially the world of like theater um, is one that is very much one of fantasy, not just the fantasy being put on on stage, but kind of life outside of even off stage kind of is, becomes very unreal in a lot of ways. Um, and we see that in the, over the course of this film, which makes it very, very possible to integrate fairy tale elements into it. Uh, because they're the actors are already kind of the actors and the dancers and the composers are already kind of existing in this world of unreality because it's a world of creativity where you can kind of mm -hmm. make reality. So they're already unmoored from the shores of reality, which is well kitted and suited to a um, to a fairy tale story um, where the the world building isn't set up as being super firm uh, as like a a, dia, a full fantasy, but you kind of get those fantasy elements in there. And when something surreal happens, it kind of fits because we're already in this world of unreality, um, yeah. which, which works for the red shoes. And really the film has very little explicitly surreal elements. You know, there's, there's a climax at the end, but Throughout the film, it's mostly just the Archer style that conveys a lot of the fantasy. You know, like pretty much I feel like every Archer's film that we've watched has this just feeling of fantasy, even though they're all very, you know, all their films are set in pretty much the real world. Uh, they just feel like fantasy because of that, again, attention to detail, but also it's an attention to detail that's almost akin to animation, which is something we'll talk about in the next film, uh, in that everything has been so specifically placed that it feels like it can't be as random or spontaneous as real life. Like everything yeah, has to be there for a reason. Design, the real world isn't designed to that kind of T. Yeah. Uh, not, not in the same way that you see in an animated movie or an Archer's movie. Yeah. And then you have uh, the the actual ballet sequence where we get an extended sequence of watching the red shoes ballet. Uh, and it's a really incredible mix of ballet and film in that you have these professional dancers doing, uh, this, this really intricate performance that even people who are not well-versed in ballet can appreciate. But then it, it, doesn't limit itself to the bounds of a stage like a normal ballet would. And so you have cutscenes, and you have visual effects, you have uh, compositing effects, you have like flying on wires and, and changing sets in, in otherwise impossible ways. And so you get this really beautiful blend and mixing of mediums uh, that, again, through the, the abstract interpretations of ballet just feels like fantasy, um, but not in a way that could not be done in the real world uh, or more or less done actually on a stage while watching a ballet. Yeah, 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 right? Because they're they're really crossing the line between what's actually being presented to the audience uh, in the theater and what's being presented to the audience in the movie theater. 
if that yeah. makes sense, right? With the placement of the camera and where where could it be viewed? Like some of the scenes in the ballet, which is a huge chunk of the film, really. Um, are it's like how you forget actually, how big the uh, the gotta dance sequence is and singing in the rain. Yeah. It's like that. It's like, oh, some of this makes sense from a stage perspective. Some of this could work, but a lot of it couldn't <laughs> from a stage perspective. <laughs> yeah. Like it's too tiny or the angles aren't right or something like that. Or um, some moments that uh, rely on close up. Obviously, you wouldn't get the same effect in uh, on stage. But some visual effects where she's green screened on top of these abstract floating ribbons and stuff like that. Yeah, let's see you do that on stage. It's your <laughs> stage effects. I'll make that happen. Something. Um, but yeah, and the, the other thing about doing fairy tales and, uh, that are set in the modern day is you have to either completely ignore the, the tradition of fairy tales that we do have uh, or you have to lean into it. And so in this film, um, you have them specifically referencing the red shoes. Uh, so the ballet is about the red shoes. They're talking about the Hans Christian Andersen story. Um, and it's being done very intentionally as a thematic point with the, uh, the overbearing, um, director who is so distraught that his lead actor quit because of love that he's like, I need to hammer home the point that dance is all that should consume your life. And so let's take this story that's about that. And we're going to make a, uh, play about it and then uh if anyone double crosses me i will you know track them down and ruin their life yeah yeah no it's pretty intense yeah he's like the um he's like the maleficent of the movie yeah uh but it's interesting too in that uh he kind of doesn't represent the story right so he tells he tells julian the story the composer uh when he has to go do the music for it and he says, uh, you know, she wants to dance in her red shoes. And so she puts them on and she goes and dances. And when she gets tired, the shoes won't let her stop. And they, she just keeps dancing. She dances over hill and vale and sea and sky and uh, eventually dies, which is not completely true because actually what happens is uh, she comes to um, an executioner's house and says, hey, uh, I can't stop dancing in these shoes. Could you just cut my feet off? <laughs> and so he chops her feet off. But it really, the story is about vanity. And so she, the shoes were her uh, pride and her vanity. And he cuts her feet off and she learns humility uh, through that. And so she she kind of dies at the end. But it's, in, it's very different than what this film is about. But it's taking that general story and then kind of also taking the point and crafting a new point from the story. So in that way, it's, it's doing an adaptation that's pretty, pretty faithful, but also again, like we, like we've talked about with other films, it's using the elements of the, the fairy tale and then using that as a base point for your own commentary or your own, uh, perspective on similar themes. Yeah. 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 No, it's a good, um, it's a good, uh, it's a good base for it. Uh, let me ask you this. Are there any parts of the original version that you would have liked to have seen incorporated into the red shoes that wasn't there? Uh, there's, there's not that much else to it. Um, I think 
the yeah the the main thing is uh is the the little girl um it's basically the the elements that they left out is that it's a very it's very much based in a kind of christian slash puritan type of a culture so the girl gets the red shoes and she's super uh, proud of them, excited to wear them. She wears them to church and shows them off and everyone's looking at her and not paying attention. And so that's part of the vanity is her is her showing off her, you know, beautiful shoes uh, and showing off how beautifully she from, can dance did, in them. She distracted them from church. Uh, yeah, exactly. I and that's where the morality so, tale comes into it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, even better is at the end, after she gets her feet chopped off, um, she decides to go back to church and, you know, uh, repent and, and be, be a good girl. And, but every time she goes to the church, the red shoes come and dance in front of her and she gets scared. And so she hobbles away. The executioner, uh, executioner also makes her wooden feet, but she's kind of, oh, she hobbles to away. Say, how's she hobbling? <laughs> so she has wooden feet and, and her crutches. So she hobbles away and she, she tries to go to the church a couple times, but the red shoes are always in front of her. And, uh, so then she she just goes to her room and closes the door and and uh, just prays for forgiveness. And then her room transforms into the church and she's like transported into the church service that she can hear across the courtyard. Uh, and they're like, oh, wow, so glad that you could join us. And she was like, I tried, but the red shoes stopped me. And then she was so happy to be back in church that uh, she died and her soul went up to heaven. She so died that's the stuff that they, okay. <laughs> that's the stuff that they didn't put in the movie. Uh, which is kind of understandable, but it's still, there's also a change in focus of the point. <laughs> this one has a much more tragic end ending, obviously, which feels more grim than uh, Hans Christian Andersen. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah. Hans Christian Andersen was, was much more uh, child-focused than grim, which were much more academically, like, folk-focused. Yeah. The, uh, here's a question. The, the death the scene after at the very end of the movie she's supposed to be dead right uh i think it, it was a little unclear yeah because that's that's my thing like uh, it looked like the doctor declared her dead but she's still moving so yeah she was i didn't know if that was like uh you know she didn't do the performance quite right and they just left it because it was good enough or if it was supposed to be uh Maybe she has a second chance. But yeah, they did say she was dead. Because in the ballet too, like doesn't it she like dies in the ballet, right? But and she's they're mourning. And then they her, have a her ghost they have a wake or something. or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's right. She she's kind of haunting her own wake. Yeah, yeah. I thought it might be something like that, but I couldn't be certain. Maybe. But it's also doesn't it just cut to black right after that? So there's not a lot of time for yeah, interpretation. Yeah, there's not really a big resolution. Kind of they they make their point and they end the movie. Yeah, I think I think it's mostly just the the big picture. Although the ending does kind of you you kind of see it coming, but still I feel like Julian has a big 180 at the end where he comes in in his in his leather jacket and he's like, "Why'd you walk out on me?" I would never walk out on you. I walked out on my own thing just for you, but now you're dead to me. Right? It's really intense. And and up to that point, he's been, you know, the most like gaga romantic lead. But you do get it's so interesting how they kind of work that in because you get the the scenes of their marriage where, you know, he's like sneaking out of the bed, like, you know, implying that he's like cheating on her with his music. 
um, which is really the point of both of them is that they're both torn in those two different, uh, they're both torn between their love for each other and their love for the art. Um, mm-hmm. But, and then you get the sense that Julian was, you know, when it comes down to it, he was true to her and she was true to the red shoes in, in her heart of hearts is kind of what they're going for. In that way, it's kind of, there's, there's a uh, tradition in the film that kind of leads up to uh, La La Land in a more modern adaptation. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, where people, the, the kind of like the question between uh, a devote, it's a question of like career versus personal pursuits, but uh, with the, the a career in a specifically like, artistic sense. Yeah, with with the artistic, within the artistic. Because it's scope, not really a Citizen kind of, Kane kind of a thing. Yeah, it's kind of like this weird thing. Like it is basically maybe artists an just romanticize the their but, own obsessions. Yeah, they romanticize it, their own obsessions more than business people's obsessions. Yeah, like there seems to be something, at least in the popular imagination, that's ennobled about the. Uh, about the uh, the concept of being devoted to like an artistic career, like that's somehow the, more the noble bleeding poet than being uh, devoted to a non artistic career. Yeah, um, and I can see some logic to that, but at the end of the day, you are kind of like it. it the 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 idea at the end of the day is also one of like an imbalance of the things in one's life, and if one's life becomes all one thing, then it doesn't matter what that thing is. It it's, it is unbalanced, and that's not a healthy thing to do but there is kind of this this aura around um artistic pursuits i mean heck i've seen it in hollywood firsthand where it's like oh if you pursue this that's a good thing to pursue and you should devote yourself entirely to it and be willing to issue other parts of your life for it whether it be like um uh, a significant other or even like your own mental health both of which are things we see in the red shoes um so yeah, it's kind of in that way. It's another tale as old as time. Yeah. So devote to the theater that you can't uh, you you can't drop the act when you're not there. Yeah, exactly. But again, it's it's that story. It's that it's that hyper grand, um, <laughs> yeah, love story between between your heart and your art, and uh, done with all the flair that the archers could possibly throw at it, um, which is a lot. They have a lot of flair. Um, mm-hmm. So very enjoyable. One of their best, I think, uh, in my personal opinion. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's 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 like one of the probably one of the most iconic, if not the yeah. most iconic Archer's films. It's the one that you always hear Scorsese mention uh, <laughs> right. whenever he's uh, he's <laughs> recruiting for his uh his uh, film archive project. Yeah, I was going to say, I think one of, I think that that was, was that one of their first restorations? Yeah. I forgot that that was like a hallmark of their foundation, basically, that film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That was, that was a big deal. Um, Kind of, it's kind of like the flagship project of the, uh, of the film archive project, from what I understand, at least. It's kind of the perfect one, too, because when you look at the before and afters, you're like, it would be tragic if that film lived on with that grimy green tint over the whole thing, uh, just from being so improperly stored and and uh, copied. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It would not be good. So it be, it's, it's nice to have that back. Film archival. Very important. 
There you go. We haven't talked about that in in a while, so good to bring yeah, that back that, up. That's a that's a good film for it. Good film to talk about from Archive Archival with. All right. I think with that, let's move on to Ponyo from 2008. Jason, set it up. Ponyo from 2008. Brunhilde, the magical goldfish daughter of the sea wizard Fujimoto, escapes her father one day to explore the ocean. After being trapped in a glass bottle, she is found by a young boy named Sosuke. When Sosuke breaks the jar to rescue her, he cuts his finger and Brunhilde heals the wound by licking it. Fujimoto retrieves Brunhilde, but finds that she now wishes to be called Ponyo and is beginning to grow feet and transform into a human. Ponyo escapes again and returns to Sasuke where she learns about human things like friendship and ramen. But soon the port town is overwhelmed by stormy weather, culminating in a tsunami as Fujimoto invokes the help of Ponyo's mother, the sea goddess Gran Mamare, to help retrieve her. As Ponyo and Sosuke set out to find Sosuke's mother, who they were separated from in the tsunami, Ponyo must decide whether to return to her father or give up her magic to remain human and stay with her friend, Sosuke. Ponyo is a lot of fun. I really it's like so Ponyo. It's so much fun. I feel, like, I feel like the animators just had a blast on this film. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah, they just went wild. They they were like, "What? Did, let's let's anim- animate a bunch of liquid and squishy fish." Yeah, and I think um, I haven't gone back through the Ovra and evaluated this, but just scrolling through Wikipedia, this there was a moment where Miyazaki um, was thinking that they needed to up their animation game just before they made this film, and so I think that there's a lot of really interesting techniques and illustration styles that they incorporate into Ponyo uh, that are pretty unique from some of the earlier films. Uh, and it uh, it pays off because there's there's so much fun stuff built into uh, into this film all the way through. Yeah, no, it's it's just um, the story is honestly relatively simple, but the concept of a little magic goldfish that accidentally rip, rips open the space-time continuum <laughs> and the fabric of reality uh, because uh, she fell in love with a human boy uh, is <laughs> provides for a lot of very fun animation opportunities. Oh, yeah. I love how big the story is and how small the representation is. Yeah. Uh, which like, I feel like is something that Marvel could learn. Like, like we, we just get this small little corner of it. Yeah, even, uh, oh gosh, this is not the place to start, but it's just so much fun. I mean, even just the fact that they're like unleashing prehistoric eras of, uh, of creatures and creation uh, upon the world, and no one mentions it. Like they're like pointing out, oh look, that's a super old fish from millions of years ago. Uh, that's cool. And then they just the, move on. The, there's a lot of people who, in this movie, characters in this movie, who react to things by going, oh, that's neat. Oh, Which neat. is maybe the most surreal thing in the movie full of surreal things is how right. how non-reactive most of the people are to the crazy crap that happens. But I guess it, it is kind of working in that realm of uh, of fairy tale unreality. So it, it fits. Um, yeah. But it is weird. Like the the fact that the kid doesn't react to it super strongly is fine. But the and the fact that the old ladies don't react to it super strongly is fine. Which is great um, that they're the main part portions yeah. of the film. But the fact that the mom is so okay with it is the weirdest thing. Like the you'd mom has her, her own issues. Character, but she's just chill with every weird thing that happens. She Under- is low key 
like crazy though because her driving scenes on on that uh oh she's a wild driver yeah <laughs> she's nuts or just the fact that like an underwater sea witch uh, appears to her and is like hey the world's <laughs> ending but the only way to save it is if your little boy decides he loves uh my little a fish goldfish baby forever <laughs> yeah uh, you cool with that and she's like yeah apparently <laughs> so that's weird uh, but it is a very charming movie and it is uh, relatively simple and like what's actually like important to the plot. It's just, it's kind of is set up in a lot of the, in, and this is true of a lot of Miyazaki movies, the mm-hmm. actual plot itself, relatively simple and straightforward, but there's a just a lot of uh, places to explore very fun, very creative animation. Um, yeah. Like the point of a scene could be very simple, like you know uh, the uh, I don't remember any names, but the underwater sea wizard who used to be human, Fujimoto, um, and is Ponyo's dad. Uh, he he just has there's a scene where he can't get her, he can't control her anymore. But in that scene, we get a bunch of really cool animation with the fish bubble, with uh, squeezing Ponyo down, with her getting yeah. chicken feet and chicken legs. <laughs> Um, it's so weird. Uh, and his 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 jars everywhere. The crabs coming coming in through the window. Mm-hmm. None of that other stuff is super duper important to the plot, but it just fleshes out the world and the idea of the fantasy really well by animating all this very specific stuff that's very fun to animate, even if it's not plot relevant. It's it's very exploratory in its design and its structure, and because of it because of that it kind of embraces this childlike sense of wonder and imagination and exploration that dovetails quite well with the the sense of exploring um exploring fairy tales i guess in a sense instead of a deep dark wood you have um a a deep dark sea except it's not very dark even it's it's full of light you have a big bright sea well that's also thanks to fujimoto um but yeah i think that especially when we're talking about form um, and we've talked about a lot of different types of uh, animation and ways of presenting uh, films. And so we've talked about classic Disney 2d animation. We've talked about stop motion. We've talked about modern Disney 3d animation, modern DreamWorks 3d animation. We've even talked about uh, in Maleficent with the modern CG uh, chaos stuff. Um, But Miyazaki and the Ghibli studio have done such a good job of creating this feeling of fantasy through their animations um, that I think is is one of the best ways to translate fantasy onto film uh, in a way that if if and maybe possibly when some person decides to make a live action Ponyo, it's going to be a complete disaster because can you imagine watching the scene where Ponyo is riding the fish waves to catch up with uh, Sosuke? And it's just, it's so fluid and uh, and integrated and the timing on everything is so perfect in a way that I think is, uh, and I know every time someone calls something unfilmable, someone tries to film it, but I, I truly think that this type of a film is unfilmable in live action. Well, that's that's one of the things about Live ad, uh, live action adaptations and fantastic genres as a whole is that when you do fantasy and animation, you can kind of do whatever you want mm-hmm. uh, in whatever style you want. And if you try to adapt it to live action, inevitably what ends up happening, no matter how well you do it, is that 
you end up recreating the animation through a series of CGI. You're essentially yeah. just reanimating the whole movie again, but in a different style. It's like every single live action uh, Disney adaptation is basically like, let's reanimate this, but with yeah. CGI. Uh, the farthest extent of that is probably like the Dumbo movie or the um, the Lion King live action adaptation. Where So basically Disney has become a corporate Howard Hughes. I mean, in a lot of ways, yeah. Because uh, we've talked about how Howard Hughes filmed, uh, what was it, Hell's Angels or something? And... Mm -hmm. uh, and then reshot it like three times before even releasing it because technology kept advancing and he was unsatisfied all of a sudden. Yeah, Disney more or less. Disney is more doing that and just like, except they're releasing every single iteration of it. Yeah, like the like the the modern Disney live ad action adaptations aren't even truly live action. They're just blended animation. Yeah, like it's blended live they're action all, and animation. They're all Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Uh, but so so much of it has to be animated. Yeah, uh, through CGI. That Even you're stuff not that would be filmable is movie. just a green screen. Yeah. I mean, heck, you could probably even see that say that about like superhero movies. So much of it is done in a computer, yeah. animated, that you're not even really shooting a live action movie anymore. Yeah. And when they start just uh, AIing their actors into it, it'll be completely animated. Well, th I, I think the newest contract uh, forbids that. So, yeah. I think we'll that's see how long that off. lasts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, in in the world of of Ghibli, uh, they do. There's I think another thing about this type, especially this type of 2D animation, because, um, you know, 2D animation scales from hyper uh, impressionist to hyper realist, depending on how much time you're willing to throw at it. Uh, but in this type of stylized 2D animation, you still have an element of that um, imaginative quality. So in the sense that when you're watching live action, you know, you're you're not really imagining anything, even if it's animated to look like live action, uh, hyper realistic, you're still the the onus is not on you to imagine what this could look like in real life with this type of 2D animation there. It's a half step between your imagined view of what this story is looking like in the real world and what uh is being portrayed so in that sense i think you know because what in terms of tolkien's criticism of fantasy done dramatically is you know no matter how you try to portray uh the big big bad wolf on stage it's still either a dude in a wolf costume or it's like a bunch of metal bars in a wolf costume uh but here it wow. It way almost, to bring Five Nights at Freddy's into this. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, but I think that this type of animation gives you a little bit of that outlet to still go a step further through imagining, um, you know, translating the animated illustrations into uh, into your imagination, into your full experience of the story. So that's just a little form theory on this. But I think it's an important one because one of the things uh, Tolkien also talks about is how like fairy tales and folklore is informed by the language that it's written in. Um, and he kind of developed that theory through translating Beowulf and studying a lot of the old English stories. Um, and 
So I think that it's important to look at the language that's being used, even within the medium of film, you know, different types of animations are almost different dialects when translating stories. Uh, and I think that they each present the story in a specific way, which again is another argument for not reinterpreting them as live action, because a lot of times these fairy tale stories are specifically built for a type of animation. They were not built to be live action stories. There's a different type of story and effect that comes across with live action stories. Um, but we've beat that point to death, I think. Yeah. 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 You, you lose some of the fantasy by bringing it closer to reality. Yeah. And, and there are ways to do it, but it's not a direct translation of one animated story into the modern world. But we're going to, I mean, looking at films like the red shoes and even Undina, there are ways of adding fantasy to live action but it's not this type of like Ponyo is the most overtly fantastic film that we're talking about right now uh, because it's the most explicit because of that form that it takes, which allows so much more artistic freedom and artistic imagination to translate to the audience that live action does not afford. Gosh, I just love how an Japanese anime films just take a break from the plot for like 30 minutes to just do random crap. <laughs> But it's, it's all anime. like really fun random crap. Yeah. Yeah. Like in Ponyo, the, the ramen sequence, the when the storm is coming and they're just hanging out at home, you know, there's there's literally a catastrophic event happening and uh, they're they're going to start the generator and make ramen. Um, and it's it's wonderful. But that's that's also one of the things about Ponyo that is incredible for this idea of recovery is especially using children as the protagonist and the main and this fish out of water protagonist who's exploring the world. Um, I see what you did there. Thank you. Uh, but you get this appreciation for things like ramen. Like ever, ever since Taylor and I watched this for the first time, we're, we just like, we'll randomly shout, I want ham. Just like Ponyo's, complete exuberance over the smallest things like ham and ramen or uh, mm. whatever whatever else is going on. Like we actually uh, did that. We I think after we watched Ponyo or something, we we watched another uh, Japanese film and we did fancy ramen. We, we added the the egg and the ham and the... Oh, um, man. Did you get a slice of that chasu pork in there? Oh, man, that's some good stuff. No, we have not done pork. We should do that. Uh, but now you know, you have it to just, make sure you use the technique from Tampopo to properly enjoy I know enjoy you the stroke, ramen. stroke the pork, and you appreciate it, and you take mm. your moment, taste <laughs> the broth, taste the broth. Um, but it does it. It gives you this kind of renewed appreciation for one of the simplest things that you know you could take ramen and make it in three minutes and eat it in fifteen minutes, uh, or you can take a second and realize, hey, this is kind of a fun meal. This is a uh, this ramen is an experience, you know, so uh, it's great to see a story like this where the characters are appreciating life in a new way. And even watching Sosuke teaching Ponyo about the simplest things like uh, what does he say? Like every everything that happens where they're like, is the water going to turn on? And Sosuke is like, we have a tank in the back. Isn't that great? This is how things work. I'm learning about things and now I can show you how things work. And Ponyo is just, oh. <gasps> amazed about everything yeah they they have a pretty good lock on how a five-year-old's brain works yeah um and so but that 
it, it comes across as infectious, right? So it comes across to the audience. It's like, you know, you get that recovery, that renewed sense of wonder. And also just, I, I really like the translation of the, or the, the incorporation of the, the true love element, which is kind of boiled down into a friendship, uh, uh, just a, a true friendship kind of a thing. Uh, but it's just so sweet and innocently done that, uh, and it's not like in your face. I, I still don't totally understand the whole test of uh, the magician at the end, but they passed it, I guess. Um, and you're just, you just feel good for them. You feel so happy. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit of an intense ask, isn't it? Cause it, they, are, they do ask him like, Hey, do you love her? And will you love her forever? Uh, it's like really signing up for something real big there. Yeah. But uh, also do you, will you love her forever? Even if she's a fish? Yeah. Right. Good, good thing it was a five-year-old kid and he couldn't think about it any deeper. Yeah. It, it's uh, like, it, sure. That sounds good. It brings a new element to the, uh, if you keep it, you have to take care of it. Uh, <laughs> reprimand. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, they're signing up that kid for a big responsibility. But also, I guess maybe they just need a rubber stamp to affect, because they just needed to to either turn Ponyo back into a fish permanently or into a human permanently. But they needed to, to her being on the fence and being both was like destroying reality. Yeah. So they needed, they needed her to pick a lane. And so they needed, in a lot of ways, I kind of just view it as them finding a family that would be like, take care of her. Um, and yet in another way, it's almost a, uh, a Shakespearean, uh, diplomatic marriage, uh, which I was thinking because, you know, Fujimoto's whole plan is humans have ruined the earth. They are the polluters and we are going to return the earth to a more natural state. We're going to bring forth all of this, uh, life and generation that hasn't been seen since the prehistoric ages, uh, and Ponyo's love for Sosuke and her, you know, for lack of a better term, like union with Sosuke is a meeting of the two kingdoms of the, the sea kingdom and the earth kingdom, which is the polluters. And she basically saves the humans from being destroyed because she totally ruins Fujimoto's plan because now she's uh, united with the humans, um, which is, again, just like a whole other level that's not even addressed but there's so many just randomly deep implications of the plot that's been set up yeah yeah no <laughs> so some big like heavy decisions being made in this otherwise relatively lighthearted movie yeah but i do want to talk about the uh the literary heritage of the story because it comes from uh miyazaki's reading of the Little Mermaid when he was a child and he was really bothered by the fact that the Little Mermaid doesn't have a soul uh, until, you know, she's united with the uh, un unless she can become united with the human because that's not guaranteed in the original story. Um, and yet there's also the Little Mermaid, which is inspired by the old German tale of Undina and that's really interesting. I feel like I've already brought up Undina, but now this is where it kind of all comes in because it's going to play into our next film too. But uh, in Undina, there's a there's a nymph who marries a human and then the human 
goes back to like she's living in this cottage in a dark wood or whatever, and the the human has braved lots of uh, magical perils to to and actually accidentally ends up there, finds her. They live a long time in kind of isolation, and they fall in love, and then uh, and get married, and then they come back to where he was living, and his old love is uh, suddenly gets super jealous, and then he starts falling in love with his old love, and then kind of uh, starts to abandon Undina. But as a nymph, one of her things is like, if she's been united with a human and he leaves, uh, he has to die for that. Obviously, um, obviously, which plays into the little the original Little Mermaid story as well, um, where uh, she she has to kill the prince if he doesn't fall in love with her, which he doesn't because she can't talk. And it's yeah, really let's see hard you animate to animate uh, that Disney. <laughs> um, but anyway, so we have Undina translating into the Little Mermaid, translating into Ponyo. Also, the guy who wrote Undina, um, Friedrich de la Motfok, uh whatever rolls off the tongue. Yeah. He also is one of the first people to dramatize some of the, uh, old, uh, Icelandic tales, which then was adapted by, uh, or was influenced Wagner to write the ring cycle of which also is influenced in both the Lord of the Rings takes a huge influence from the ring cycle, but also Ponyo takes a big influence. Lord of the Rings takes influence from the (laughs) ring cycle. It's crazy, right? Who could have saw it coming? Um, but in apparently Miyazaki just listened to Dai Valkyrie while writing the the story, and uh, I don't know on repeat or something. But the the story takes D D Valkyrie. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it looks like Dai, but it just it's just the. It's a, one of the gendered forms of the from the ver- the German language. Gotcha. So it's just the Valkyrie. Yeah, D Valkyrie. So. But D Valkyrie is about uh, a Valkyrie named uh, a Valkyrie being basically an angel of sorts um, who falls in love with a with a human and has to you know go down and uh, they have some adventures. I don't know if they get married because he's already in love with someone else. I think his sister. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in that story. Um, but anyway, there's there's that whole union. But then. But there's there are these motifs from uh, De Valkyrie that translate into a lot of other stories, which most famously is the Ride of the Valkyries, where she's coming down to Earth with all of her Valkyrie sisters, and it's this really epic march, which has been used in Apocalypse Now when they're napalming the uh, the town. It's been used so many times, but it's directly referenced here when Ponyo escapes for the second time. And all of her fish sisters turn into these golden giant fish and she's like riding on them. And uh, they almost completely reprise that uh, that number. Um, but and and her name originally is Brunhilde, which is the name of the main Valkyrie in the Valkyrie. So there's a lot of this uh, fantasy uh, cross pollination happening. Uh, amongst these stories and but again this is a good example of taking a lot of those inspirations and modifying them enough to become a new story or to become a new kind of commentary or uh, uh, message I guess yeah yeah man did we just equate Ponyo to a Valkyrie 
Uh, we didn't. Miyazaki directly equated Ponyo to a Valkyrie. Mm, I'm guess oh, she does have all of her little sisters, right? Who, who are con? I I just make the assumption they're all sisters, but uh, they are. They they are constantly helping helping her out in varieties of ways. Yeah, especially by screwing up Fujimoto. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the other uh, Django Unchained uses the. Uh, the Brunhilde story as a backdrop too. Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm just saying that that story permeates a lot. Um, but so the other thing to mention about Ponyo before we move off it in terms of the using the magic in the modern day is like we talked about with when we're talking about the idea of escapism, the idea of getting away from the evils of the real world. And one of the things that Tolkien was constantly trying to you know, for lack of a better term, escape through his fantasy was uh, mechanization and robotization. And he talks specifically about, you know, if you write a story that doesn't have electric street lamps, maybe it's a commentary on how ugly and terrible electric street lamps are. And I feel like in Ponyo, we have not an escape from, but using magic as direct combat against the evils that Miyazaki is trying to escape, which is uh, primarily uh, pollution and, you know, environmental disrespect, which plays into a ton of Miyazaki's work. Uh, But here you have it specifically in like, you know, Ponyo starts off by just getting captured by a glass bottle in a really dirty harbor in Japan. And uh, so, and also again, Fujimoto's whole plan is to, rid the the world of the pollution and bring back the uh the sea life that's been lost through pollution and so in that way it's not an escape from the things that miyazaki didn't doesn't like about the modern world it's not writing a world with no pollution it's about writing the magic to come back and combat the (laughs) those evils of the modern world uh in a way that you know would kind of seem more futile or less impactful if it was done in a more straightforward, less magical way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the magic is a key part of it, right? Um, and I don't know what Fujimoto's whole story is. I don't know how he went from being a human to being a sea wizard. He Uh, looks like he used to be on the yellow submarine back in the day. I was thinking he looks like, uh, David Bowie with the Beatles. One of them turned out to be a magic one, a true, a truly magic mushroom. Yeah. And he does have the baby with the power, which is Ponyo. He does have the baby with the power. Power of voodoo. Hoodoo. You do. Oh. Have we done Labyrinth on this show? We've done Labyrinth on this show. We have done Labyrinth. Yeah, that was on the Jim Henson episode, wasn't it? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, yeah, that's right. All right, shall we move on to Undina? Yes, we shall. Undina from 2020. Undina is a historian giving lectures on the history and future of Berlin to tourists. After Johannes tells her that she is ending his affair with her, she reminds him that if he leaves her, she must kill him, referring to the classic legend that she is named after. Johannes dismisses her, and later that day she meets Christoph, an industrial diver who attended one of her lectures. Soon a romance develops between them, and Christoph shows her some of the strange things he has seen on his dives, including a gigantic catfish and Undina's name written on a submerged bridge structure. When a work accident leaves Christoph in a coma, Undina must take drastic measures to put her past behind her for good and secure a future for the man she loves. 
All right. Uh, does I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this question. Did the German guy's voice, the diver's voice, sound really odd to you? It sounded uh, really I mean, weird to me, in, and I couldn't tell. It almost sounded like he was talking like with cotton balls in his mouth. I couldn't tell if it was like an impediment or if he just had like a very distinct mumble, kind of like Tom Hardy-esque. Well, uh, he was speaking German, so I wasn't paying that much attention to whether mm. or not he was pronunciating properly. Yeah, ich verstehe. <laughs> um, but he did. He does look like he he had a cleft palate or something. So there might be a little bit of an. Impediment. Oh yeah, maybe maybe I didn't notice that. Yeah, he he actually reminded me a lot of uh, Joaquin Phoenix for some reason. He does look like Joaquin Phoenix. Okay, I good. Think it's the haircut. Just yeah. I think I think Joaquin Phoenix has a little bit of the curve of the lip in a similar way. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's the German Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, um, he did a good job. I think him and. Uh, I think both him and Paula Beer are both dancers uh, mm. originally who had worked with this director on a film previously, I think Transit, and uh, and he really liked that they had a very um, uh, a more natural style of acting than some of the actors that came out of the German acting schools, uh, mm. and so he he liked their chemistry a lot and recast them. Actually, I think he came up with. He was working on this film, and then while finishing the previous film, he had them act out a scene. He just like threw out an improv situation for them and really liked their chemistry and then uh, recast them again for this film. They did have really good chemistry for the romance portions of the film. It is mostly a romance movie. It is. Like the, the fairy tale kind of works its way into like this dark mystery version of, yeah. of a fairy tale, which fits with the Andina nymph who must kill all of her exes. Uh, type tale. Well, uh, yeah, that's that's an extreme version. That's I think that's how the the fairy tale has kind of translated. But it's it's really more a a vengeance on a on a broken contract in the original. Yeah. Um, I like I like how Undina is just straight up about it too at the start of the movie. Usually, like, hey, dude, I know. if you leave me, I'm just letting you know I'm gonna have to kill you. And I don't think the guy really takes her seriously, but also. You should have taken her seriously. Yeah. And that's that's the only indication we get in this film that there is that history of this story within the the story. Uh, yeah. Because she's like, you know, in the story that I'm named after, blah, blah, blah. But then you get you get some hints that, you know, maybe she was being metaphorical because uh, later on she she's uh, she calls the other guy. What are their names? Uh, she calls Kristoff. And uh, is like I thought I couldn't live without him, and uh, but now I realize that that you know I can, and we can have a beautiful life together or whatever. Um, and so, but then you realize, oh no, she was actually being literal. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, it, honestly, the fantasy is kind of like the lead is buried. But once you start to get into it, you're like, oh, okay, no, there's definitely something weird going on here. I came up with the impression that she was actually like either a mortal or very long lived as a mermaid water nymph thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought like the reason she was such good at so good at like giving the historical presentations um, was that she had been there for a huge chunk of the history of Berlin, um, and so could could more easily give the the history. That and she just seems, I don't know, weirdly unkillable, but. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So uh, I watched a, an interview with the director that, that shed some light on that. But I do want to talk about how well I think the the fantasy elements are integrated. Like you're saying, they're they're pretty subtle. They're not necessarily in the background, but they kind of hide in the shadows of the film, if that makes sense. Um, and so you're constantly kind of seeing them peek out and you're not sure how you're not sure how much the film is uh, taking them seriously or just trying to make you think that it's taking it seriously until you finally get to the pretty much the very end. Um, so, and, and I think the other thing that's really great, especially talking about medium, talking about style is that this film is, especially compared to something like the red shoes, this is a very, uh, hyper realistically portrayed type film. It has a very indie kind of a feel to it. Yes, Um, very much so. Yeah. And it's super simple, limited cast, the hyper limited locations. Yeah. It's super simple. Again, the actors have a very kind of natural quality to them. And so I think that that all lends itself very well to contrasting the fantastic elements um, with and then making them feel more integrated into the real world, too, uh, because they're not over the top. They're not, um, you know, there's no sea wizard (laughs) making giant glowing jellyfish or whatever. but you know, there's like a giant catfish that sometimes shows up in weird places. And what's his? They give him a name, don't they? It's like Big Fred or something. Gunther, Big Gunther. It's a very German kind of thing. I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I looked up. There are catfish that big. That was not an exaggeration. Yeah, no catfish. Get that is huge. Not that catfish are. You know, I assume they're not that. I, I mean, they can they can bite and stuff, but it's just that's a big that's a big fish. Yeah, that's a big old fish. Um, make up some catfish jambalaya with that. So, in terms of Undina's lore, I guess, uh, specifically the character in in this film, um, there's a big part of the theme of the film, which is this, uh receding or drying up, um, which is both a, a physical phenomenon in terms of the way that, uh, a lot of Undina's presentations about Berlin are the ways that they reroute the canals and they, you know, they're physically rerouting the water out of the city in order to build the city up, make it bigger and bigger. Yeah. Cause um, it was in a marsh. Right, which is which is another really important line from the film, which is that Berlin means marsh or swamp, or it could also be interpreted as a dry place in the marsh. And so the, what the director was talking about in the interview is that there's this idea of of like you like you kind of mentioned, the dark waters. There's the dark sea that's kind of the the mystical dark wood or the where where the unknown, where the the fantasy elements live. But yeah, they're all being the, pushed out by modernity and dried it's up. It's the clearing out of the fairy forest. Yeah. And so in a subtle way, Undina is has kind of been displaced. And so now she has to find a place in the in the real world. So now she takes a normal job and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but she still has this kind of heritage that she has to be true to. Um, and 
So there's all that kind of in the background. And so that's why I feel like in this film, talking about the magic elements, this is magic as eulogy. This is incorporating magic into the real world as kind of a swan song to those elements of wonder that are being pushed out by modernization and science and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yet it's still kind of there. And there's still, you know, if you go into the right pond, if you go deep enough, you still just might encounter the dark waters or Big Gunther or Undina. I mean, it makes sense from a historical perspective, the dark ages where a lot of these fairy tales kind of originate from, those also matches up with a period of history, especially in Europe, where a huge chunk of the primeval forest were cleared. Like Europe used to be mostly forest and like 80% of those forests were Mm -hmm. cut down between the fall of the Roman Empire and the year 1000. So that's, and that's also when most of these fairy tales originate from when modernity was encroaching on those wild places. So that as an origin for fairy tales makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then, yeah, but for the most part, we're seeing this pretty traditional romance, like you mentioned. It it almost has, like we mentioned just before we started recording, this uh, this French angsty kind of romance element to it, especially with the kind of sort of love triangle, the super vague um, relationship between Undina and Johannes, the first guy, uh, which I think the deal is that he was married and having an affair with her, but... It also kind of sounded like he left her for someone else that was newer. I don't know. I was a little confused. But Yeah, it's never it's never super duper clear. We just know that there's some other established relationship that he's kind of like in and out of and he's kind of like I don't know. Undina seemed to be the side piece to me. Yeah. Um Yeah. I think I think Undina also seems to have an awareness by especially by the end of the movie that uh, as someone who is obligated to kill all of her exes, it's maybe a little bit responsible to go around dating. Um, I think I think the idea is more if if you abandon her, right? It's yeah. more the uh, and if you take it to like a a more metaphysical t- type of realm, like if you if you attach yourself and bind yourself to the mythical, you better respect it because uh, it might come back to you. Um, yeah. Well, in, in the end, too, she kind of like makes a bit of a noble sacrifice by abandoning uh, the diver dude. In order- right. And that's why he doesn't die, because he didn't leave her. Yeah. It was the other way around. And in a lot of ways, he kind she kind of becomes like a protective spirit, giving yeah. him like that totem at the end. Like mm-hmm. that very much feels like, oh, we have a water nymph who watches over our family, refuses to let any harm come to us. Right. Like, you could almost make dope. a really interesting sequel uh, about the child um, yeah. and, you know, their like relationship with the waters and and that kind of thing. I mean, um, when the diver went back down a second time to work on the bridge that he, he had the accident on, uh, it definitely seemed like Undina was there pr- like watching over him in a very kind of protective manner. Not just to say hi, but like, hey, if anything happened to, to you down here. I would not be okay with it. So I am here to, to keep an eye on you and make sure that you're not going to die. Sorry, bud, you've got a a protective deity now. It it does also seem like that particular spot is, you know, her spot or the, the spot where her and so, so another thing to mention about the original story is that, um, 
Undina has an an uncle who's kind of who's basically like a uh, Is uh, his Neptune name Big Gunter. <laughs> I don't think it was Gunther because that's a silly uh-huh. name, and I would probably remember that. But Undina has an uncle who's like a almost like a Neptune kind of a character. He takes the form of rivers that kind of guide the uh, the night through the wood. He at some point is upset and so he surrounds the cottage with water um and so he's very protective of undina and she has to talk him into letting her uh marry the the human and presumably he gives her the lecture about if you marry him you'll become human you either have to become seafoam or kill him if he abandons you yada 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 um and so i feel like that's what big gunter is big gunter is undina's uh, watcher protector because when they go down together, she you know rides off with the with the catfish, um, and so he the the catfish is kind of her protector, and then she's there to kind of yeah like you said protect him from her protector and be that in between kind of person. Watch out for Big Gunter. That's all I'm saying. Watch out. Big Gunter will get you. Yeah, but there there is also. Um, just the, the way that the film starts, uh, in media rest gives you also this kind of sense of mystery because there is no, like you said, she, she feels like a timeless being, um, even though you'd think she would learn by now to not get attached. Uh, but the fact that she has no backstory or origin or, uh, exposition within the film gives her character more of a mythical quality too, because, and then she disappears and no one knows where she is. There's no kind of record of her even within the story. So that, that there is kind of a jumping into things and leaving the audience hanging or trying to pick up the pieces as they go along. But that is also part of that subtly mythical element of the film. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Man, sorry. I'm still thinking about big Gunter. It's pretty cool. I'll get you a big Gunter poster. I mean, he's he's like he's literally a big fish. He's kind of he like the movie Big Fish. I know. I it definitely brought some big fish vibes. And the I I just like that this the lore is very unspecific, but it doesn't need to be very specific to work. Yeah, but yeah, and especially you what you need to know, not much else. And and I do kind of like the fact that Undina is a. It's it's a very classic fairy tale, but it's not it hasn't been Disneyfied. The Little Mermaid's been Disneyfied, but this is kind of a different track that uh, you know, the audience isn't, you know, completely expecting too much. So let's move on to overall notes and kind of talk about this idea in general of um and and we've kind of been touching on this, but how it's I'm I'm really interested in how we bring this element of the mystical or the unknown into modern storytelling because like we said there's there's so much less of a space in the world for something that's not known because everything is googleable everything has a wikipedia page blah 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 blah. like i was i was reading um last night in a book of irish fairy tales about uh the puka uh which is you know, there, there has been a modern adaptation of the Puka in Harvey, um, which I think is a really great film. Again, talking about, uh, just kind of this pure friendship between the human world and the fairy world. Uh, but 
the some of the original stories of the puka, it, the puka was a horse that would kind of um, <laughs> they would come up to travelers who were out drinking too late or gambling or whatever. And on their way home, it would pick them up uh, it, on its back and then they would be stuck on its back and it would just take off mad dash, run them against walls and scrape and break their shins and then through brambles and tear up their clothes and then like pretend to throw them off a cliff so that they're terrified to death and then run them back and then just kick them off on the side of the road. And then, you know, they would get home late and they would be totally beat up and, and, (laughs) and whatever. And, uh, and so you get this sense that, you know, in a world where your cottage is a few miles away from the tavern, the guy goes out drinking He's coming back late. There's no lights. You know, your mind's going to come up with all kinds of stuff out there. And then also, if you have to come up with an explanation to your wife by the time you get home of why, you know, you might have fallen down a, a path or a hill, um, you know, there's there's a room for this kind of mythical explanation. And also uh, with a lot of these, like the puka has so many different spellings because there's no consistency because it kind of pops up in different ways. Sometimes it's a horse, sometimes it's a bull, sometimes it's a rabbit. Um, and so there, there is this sense that you can feel with, you know, that Tolkien was feeling that uh, a lot of these fantasy writers are feeling that now you have electric streetlights. There's no you know, there's no room for a mythical explanation because everything is in the light. Everything has been explored or explained or whatever. Um, and there's there's a much different space for fireside storytelling, if any. Again, like we talked about with uh, parlor stories and fairy tales. Um, and so it's interesting to think about where there is a place or if there is a place or how that element can still be incorporated into modern stories. Yeah, 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 yeah. How do you blend the more modern, uh, contemporary setting that's farther and farther away from the deep, mysterious force of antiquity with mm-hmm. the uh, fairy tales that represent those deep force of antiquity? Where are the uh, the mysterious places left? Except for the dark web. Oh, hopefully not there. <laughs> yeah, there's there's really not a great there there might be a little bit of room for it in a technological sense, almost in a black mirror kind of a way. But I feel like either of those applications are super limited or they have not been, um, they've not been well explored because even with specifically black mirror, the, the stories become a little one note, right? There's, there's kind of one thing to say about that, which is the technology can, take over too much and then there's not enough left in the real world. Uh, but it's not really the same kind of a, kind of a feeling as a mythical story. I think the best, uh, uh, place to set your unexplored fairy tales is space. Is that sarcastic? No, I think, okay. I think that's <laughs> that. I think that represents the, the unexplored, the, yeah. uh, the mysterious, uh, the, the thing that could contain the, uh, the mystical beings that go bump in the night. Uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's near because of modernity, but it's also still pretty far away from modernity. I think it could be yeah. the, the place where we keep the, uh, the fairy tales of, of the future. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, I'm trying to think of, 
how that has been or could be done. It's it's kind mm, of been Star done. Star Trek. Star Trek. Yeah, that's true. Star Trek and has done that really Star well. Star Wars. Actually, both of them are kind of like space fairy tales. Yeah. Um, that's true because they, they do lean more on the fantasy end than hard sci-fi doesn't give the same impression. Um, I guess I guess you get you do get that in 2001 uh, and things of that nature. Um, yeah, I can see that. Even I even mean, uh, Planet Star of the Star Wars. Star Wars literally starts off a long time ago in a galaxy far, That's far true. away. <laughs> it is a it once is a upon direct. a time in a land far, far away. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying Star Wars is is space track. Come at me, Star Wars stands. Do it. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that's a good that's a good place to uh, to look towards. Um, to boldly go. Uh, and then, yeah, there are a lot more films. I feel like in the further watching category of this episode. So um, I've already mentioned Harvey, which I think is a great place to find modern fantasy intersection uh, in a very wholesome and uh, and just feel good type of film. Also, The Secret of Rowan Inish from 1994, which is about uh, the Selkies. We didn't talk about too many specifically Irish fairy tales in this series, um, but we also talked about Song of the Sea in a previous episode, which is also a very, uh, actually, Song of the Sea and Wolfwalkers, a lot of the, uh, um, oh gosh, what are they called? Uh, Cartoon Saloon stories kind of fit this type of uh, storytelling uh, Undine from 2009 starring uh, Colin Farrell is Undine, I think set in Ireland or Scotland. And uh, it's a, it's another modern take on the same story. Um, Black Swan from 2010 has a lot of similarities to the red shoes in a very dark take. Um, the lure from 2015 is also a very dark take on the little mermaid uh, as is, Creature from the Black Lagoon from 1954 and The Shape of Water from 2017. Uh, and then, as we mentioned, a lot of Ghibli films kind of find their grounding in this intersection of a modern Japanese setting with a lot of fantasy, fairy tale, uh, folk tale influence. So My Neighbor Totoro is a really good to go hand in hand with uh, Ponyo. They both have that kind of uh, fun, wide-eyed wonder at the world with some magical elements. Yeah. Man, there's so much fun stuff out there. There's a lot of fun stuff out there. Uh, and yeah, so I guess as a whole, we have kind of wrapped up uh, a big chunk of what fairy tales are. Obviously, there's a lot of other types of fairy tale films out there. And again, we're trying to kind of stick to a track, kind of not go too much into the uh, super sensationally type of fairy tale films, but there are all kinds of uh, fairy tale influenced stories out there. Should you choose to go check them out? Um, a few that are coming up. There's one that I just saw a trailer for today called Damsel that's coming out next year, starring Millie Bobby Brown, which looks like a high fantasy um, kingdoms collide uh, twist on the, damsel in distress the princess has to go fight a dragon i don't know um and uh 
a film called Wildwood that the brief premise that I saw, I don't know when that's coming out, but brief premise seems very fairy tale-y, dark woodsy kind of a thing. Uh, so keep an eye out because there's, there's fairy tales still coming out. They're still a thing, but hopefully this gives some categories for how to think about fairy tales, how to think about the lineage of fairy tales, where they're coming from, and how they are uh, approaching the stories and the types of things that they're trying to say about the real world. Uh, because just taking a fairy tale that you made 50 years ago and remaking it uh, is not as interesting as taking a fairy tale that no one knows about and using it to make a comment on how we live in a modern technological world. Who knows? There might be a fairy tale right in your neck of the woods, just waiting for you to discover it. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, that'll wrap up fairy tales and that will wrap up 2023. Thank you all for joining us. And uh, we have got some new stuff lined up for next year, next season. But yeah, we are coming back with a new series in January. We'll be taking the break in December for holidays and whatnot. And uh, in January, we will be talking all about the French New Wave. Alex, give us a little more detail on what's coming up with French New Wave. All right. So uh, for the uh, French New Wave uh, of course, we are talking, we're going to call it something along the lines of Cahier du Cinema, which is the magazine that kind of represents the centralization of this movement. The uh, film critics and writers who became filmmakers in their own right and uh, contributed to this movement, um, who watched all those old Hollywood movies and kind of gained new appreciations for techniques that were used. And also in the process, kind of invented the idea of indie cinema along the way. But we'll be talking about uh, Jean-Luc Godard in detail, who we surprisingly have not done an episode on yet. Eric Romer and his six moral tales. Francois Truffaut, who's appeared many times in yes. this podcast, but uh, we've never done a specific topic on him. Claude Chabrol, who is a very good um, uh, French New Wave filmmaker, but not probably not one of the names that uh, a lay person might be super familiar with, unless you get really into this kind of nerdy stuff. Uh, and finally, Jacques Rivette, again, kind of the same, same idea. So we'll be kind of following those, uh, those five creators as well as uh, kind of following their careers through the French new wave as it kind of built up and culminated in around uh, 1973 kind of starts in, uh, around 1960 and goes to 1973, so about a decade of very intense uh, change in the film industry that uh, happened all around the world, but the impetus is often placed on um, on this group of filmmakers out of France who kind of created this new way of looking at cinema and uh, breathed some new life into uh, the world of cinema as it started to stagnate in the uh, the post-World War II decades. Yeah. I just realized there's going to be a lot of uh, throwbacks to Hitchcock through these, uh, these guys. Yeah, too. They, all these they guys are Hitchcock, Hitchcock nerds. All these guys yeah. are um, uh, nerds about all of the old, like Howard Hawks and uh, mm -hmm. Orson Welles and all of the classic directors whose uh, works were probably enjoyed in their own time, but not thought of in the way that they're currently thought of. Um, and if you don't have these guys, then you don't have Scorsese. Um, yeah, that's true. You don't have um, 
Oh, name starts with a B. Coppola. Cop- you definitely don't have Coppola. You don't have any of the American film rates. You don't have Wes Anderson. You don't have Christopher Nolan. Um, man, what's his name? Oh, he did all the writing on, we did an episode on him. Uh, Paper Moon. Oh, Bogdanovich. Yeah, Bogdanovich. Sure. Yeah, you don't have Bogdanovich without these guys. You know, they, not only did they change the way movies were made, but they changed the way movies were thought about. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, well, you, you hear them talked about a lot, but not in a lot of depth. So if you're interested in that and kind of going into the careers of these people and uh, not just their movies, but the impetus behind them and how they influenced each other and how they influenced future movies that came after them, then um, yeah, this, this should be a pretty interesting series for you. And also if you like watching movies with subtitles, you will enjoy this. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say if, uh, if this sounds interesting to you, this would be a great time to, uh, Get a subscription to the Criterion channel because probably every one of these films will be on there. Oh, um, like I guarantee. Yeah. If not everyone, then at least 90%. Not a sponsor, but we're totally open to that. Anyway, that's about all the time we have for this episode. To find links to things that we talked about today, as well as a complete list of past episodes and all 480 films we've covered so far, visit thefilmlinks.com. You can also join us for ongoing film discussions on our Discord server. And to stay posted about upcoming episodes, follow us at The Filmlings. Summaries for this week's episode were recorded by me, Blue Jay. You can discover everything I do at thebluejayproject.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. He did a good job. I think him and... uh, I think both him and Paula Beer are both uh, actresses. Or, gosh, they're. <laughs> you'll you'll get over. there. You'll figure it out. What's going on here, man? I saying? think him and uh, Paula Beer, the lead woman, are both dancers. Anyway, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you uh, uh, see, this is what happens if Dude. I don't actually read it. <laughs> Dude, you jumped like six lines ahead. <laughs> I, I didn't have the tab open, so I was like trying to do it from memory. Uh, okay. Not like we haven't said it 150 some odd times. Yeah.